I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Blackest eyes, the devil's eyes, purely and simply evil. You're out of your mind, Wang. God bless you. <laughs> what do we do? Hello out there and welcome back to Precinct 13, a podcast about the movies, music, and mind of John Carpenter. My name is Nick Rocco Scalia, one of your two co-hosts, joined as always by your other co-host, Chris Oliphant. How's it going, Chris? Fantastic, Nick. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. Still just riding out this quarantine lockdown thing. That's that's where we're at, man. Uh... Well, your state's <laughs> doing a little better than mine, right? Yeah, the... Um... They're lightening up on things. I mean, basically, certain businesses can open and they can operate at like a 25% capacity or something like that. Um, so I think that uh, down here in the South, we're a little late to respond and maybe a little premature to reopen <laughs> things. But who knows? You know, I guess we'll see. Um, I'm certainly not going to be participating in, uh, you know, any any kind of massive social gatherings anytime soon. But yeah, things are definitely seem to be different in this, in this region of the country. Oh, that must be nice. Cause yeah, up here, I'm pretty close to New York city and, uh, and it really is snake Plissken time around here. It is the apocalypse still on the, uh, the upper Northeast. So yeah. What a great time to rewatch escape from New York. I mean, geez, I think we were talking about that before, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the Snake Plissken memes are just coming fast and furious lately, and, and it really is. It feels like something out of a Carpenter movie. Well, I'm sure you've seen the one the, the one about 2020 that says it's directed by Quentin Tarantino, written by Stephen King, and I'm like, that's kind of accurate, but it's not as accurate as maybe directed by John Carpenter and I guess still written by Stephen King. Could be like Christine. Uh, uh, yeah. Someone sent me that. Someone, te- a friend of mine, texted me that meme the other day, and I was like, "Written by Stephen King, totally agree. Directed by Tarantino, I was like, no, that does <laughs> that do- that doesn't fit. You it know? would be so much more fun if it was directed by Tarantino. I, yeah, I'd say maybe if we went with uh, George Romero or something like that, or uh, I don't know, Danny Boyle, maybe. I definitely uh, get some Romero feelings out of it. Danny Boyle too. Yeah, it's a little twenty-eight days later. It's a little 28 (laughs) weeks later now. It's, what, seven weeks or something like that? This is our third episode we've recorded in this strange time that we're in. But, hey, the show is still going, so that's important. Yep. That is very, very important. The show must go on. So what has your quarantine movie viewing been like lately? Oh, my God. I've seen so many movies recently. (laughs) Um, Basically, I've been doing a few documentaries on uh, Shudder recently. I watched the Nightmare on Elm Street doc, Never Sleep Again, um, not in one sitting because it's like four hours long or something like that, but it's very, very excellently made. And I would recommend that series to like if you're a fan of the series, it's really interesting to see how in-depth they get with each film. They got a ton of, uh, you know, creators and cast members to participate in that in that documentary for each film. And then maybe if you're someone that's not that familiar with the Elm Street series or legacy and you, you know, have only seen a couple of them, but want to know a little bit more about 
just how all those movies came together and how they were made and, and what an important part of uh, the growth of New Line Cinema um, that A Nightmare on Elm Street was. Uh, I love that franchise, you know what I mean? I, 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 I love the Friday the 13th franchise, I love the Halloween franchise, all the classics, um, but there's something about Freddy Krueger that I just love, and uh, have you seen this documentary? Are you familiar with what I'm talking about? I know of it. I haven't seen it yet because it is kind of a long undertaking, just running time-wise. Well, that's what the resume button is for. So you just, you know, <laughs> what you can knock out, like, they probably spend, like, close to 30 minutes talking about each movie, and they do all of them, uh, including Freddy vs. Jason and all that stuff. Oh, wow. So even the really modern stuff. Yeah, they, they cover the entire thing. It's interesting. I've been reading a lot lately about, like, rights issues with some of those franchises and things like that. And do you know the Friday the 13th thing where the character of Jason Voorhees is owned by different people than own the name Friday the 13th? Oh so that God. that's why it's Jason Goes to Hell and Freddy versus Jason. Rather Jason than X. Jason X, right, instead of Friday the 13th <laughs> X or something like that. And it's right, just... Right such a weird thing like why can't they just i don't know kiss and make up or whatever yeah i know that that is really interesting and it's and it's funny be, because it's crazy you have this new trilogy of halloween movies coming out and it's like man you know they haven't done i didn't think the friday the 13th 2009 movie was all that bad and it just shocks me that they haven't done anything with it in 11 years um and then the last nightmare movie which was really not good but still, they haven't touched that franchise in a decade. So, I don't know. I, I, at this point, uh, I, I wouldn't mind seeing a new one if it was done well and done right. Um, you know, I could picture somebody like, uh, like imagine a director like like Mike Flanagan doing like a new Nightmare on Elm Street movie or something like that. You know, Boy, that's or, funny. I was going to say Mike Flanagan, too. So, great uh, minds think alike. Yeah, he would nail it. And... Um, you know, the other thing that, that I will mention that I'm watching that I feel is worth sharing with you is, have you seen on Shudder yet the miniseries Cursed Films? I knew you were going to say that. No, I haven't seen that yet either. Oh, my God. It's so good. So, yeah, they just basically tell you a little bit about strange things that happened during the production and uh, actually, in some cases, post-production of movies that, um, you know, whether or not they're actually cursed, I guess, is for you to decide because you kind of hear both sides of the story with all these movies. But there's only five episodes. They're probably about 25 to 30 minutes each. Um, and they cover The Exorcist, Poltergeist, The Crow. There's an episode on Twilight Zone movie. And which one am I forgetting? Oh, um, dang it. What's the movie with the really... Uh, the Omen. The Omen. Huh. Just burn through that one, Nick. You, especially as a as the um, you know film fan that you are, I think you'll really. It's a very well done series. Yeah, I've been meaning to check that out. I knew a little bit about the poltergeist thing, the the whole supposed curse that goes along with that franchise, and just so many cast members from those movies died like immediately, or, or not yep. immediately, but a few years after making those movies. And I always thought that was very very bizarre. And then of course The Exorcist. Like I was talking um, to to someone, a family member, a long time ago, and they were saying when the book came out in the seventies, people would like buy that book and then they wouldn't keep it in their house. Like it was almost like this cursed 
object and and there was almost some like you know i mean i'm sure nobody actually believed that there was satanic power in just this paperback book but kind of interesting the way the the mystique is built up around stuff like that and i don't know the whole idea of cursed movies right i mean i love that's like some of my favorite hollywood lore like the idea that somebody hung themselves on the set of the wizard of oz and it's in the movie and it totally isn't they've debunked it and everything like that but i'm fascinated by all that stuff you're right yeah, it's right, right up your alley, and I'll say right now, without spoiling anything, that believe it or not, the uh, the episode on the Twilight Zone bugged me out the most, man, because I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, there's a huge tragedy that happened the on the set. Helicopter the, crash, right? They killed Vic Morrow? Yeah, and they, they, they show the footage. Oh, it's, really? Uh, it's just, it's awful, like, absolutely heartbreaking, um, but... Anywho, I mean, <laughs> it, making movies can be a dangerous thing, apparently. And, well, uh, it, it can be. And actually, I was just getting to a movie that's kind of about that, oddly enough. I saw a film the other day that I don't think it's on Shudder anymore. I paid to rent it. I couldn't stream it off of Shudder, but it was for a while, called Barbarian Sound Studio from 2012. Have you heard of this movie? I'm betting not. No, I have not. Yeah, it was kind of like a festival darling kind of film. And it's so niche that like me and, you know, I, I can't even think of anybody else I know that would be into what this movie's about. But <laughs> it's basically like set in the late 70s in Italy. It's about this British sound editor, uh, like a film sound editor that gets hired to work on a, an Italian horror film. And basically like... I'd say about 75% of the movie is set in the sound studio where they're recording ADR and Foley for this movie. So basically it's like people making horrible sounds with knives and vegetables to sound like stabbings in the movie. And then like people in a booth just screaming their heads off like they're being ripped apart kind of thing. And what's cool hmm. about it is you never see the movie that they're talking about. So they're like acting out this, it's about witches or something like that. And it's, you know, this fake Italian movie from the 70s, like a Dario Argento film. Sure. And all we see is these characters just kind of like reacting to it. And it slowly starts to drive this guy a little bit crazy, but not as much as you would think in a film that is kind of horror-ish, but not exactly horror. But oh, wow. it's just, it's such a bizarre movie and such a niche thing. And uh, the director, Peter Strickland, I've been just kind of meaning to check out some of his stuff. And that's the first one that I saw. And it's just this like... Like, I love movies about movies. I love movies about horror movies. I love the idea that movies can be cursed, that there's kind of a, a dark side to this whole art of filmmaking. And I just thought this kind of captured that in a really interesting way. It's kind of wow. funny, too. Like, you know, you get a shot of, like, a dude just, like, maniacally laughing in a booth all by himself and you know you've been in situations like that i mean people kind of just look silly when they're performing to no one so sure wow I that sounds really interesting send me the link or something i'll, I'll check it out yeah i mean it's, it's a slow burn movie but uh i i think you might like it i don't know you you have some eclectic taste for stuff like that I mean, you really have to like the whole process i mean it's it's one of the only movies i've ever seen about post-production and you know we've hmm. seen so many movies about the making of a movie but i don't ever remember seeing a movie mostly set in like an editing room so i, I thought that was pretty cool wow but anyway, have we even mentioned <laughs> we've been here for how long now? And uh, we haven't even <laughs> talked about what the main event here is. And that is part two of our discussion of John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China. 
We kicked off that discussion last week. We kind of were just going in order. We talked a little bit about the the pre-production of that film, and then we made our way through the film proper, and we've just been kind of hacking our way through the brush, as it were, of of all these different sequences, just because there's so many different things and so much happens in this movie. So we left off with the, uh, the brothel sequence, which is one of my favorite parts of the movie because Kurt Russell in that suit and those glasses just absolutely kills me. That tie that his wife bought him, supposedly. Oh, this, oh yeah. It's so funny. So I want to talk about that a little more, but we will be right back and get back into our discussion of Big Trouble in Little China. Way to go, Jack. Jack Burton's coming to rescue your summer. Hey, what more can a guy ask for? 20th Century Fox presents Kurt Russell in John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China. It's on the reflexes. All right, we are back to finish off our two-part discussion on Big Trouble in Little China. As I said, we left off, you know, about... 30, 40 minutes into the movie. And this movie's not that long. It's only, I think, about 99 or 100 minutes altogether. But as I was saying, it it just has so much stuff happening in it. I mean, we, we've we already seen, what, like three or four amazing action sequences at this point <laughs> and all of this stunt work. I mean, like everything, you would think this movie's really front-loaded, right? Like if it just got boring right at this point, then you'd be like, oh, well, that was still a pretty good action flick. But no, this one kind of just keeps upping the ante over and over and over again but that brothel scene is really cool because it starts out like i was saying with that moment of just really fun comedy where kurt russell is pretending to be just a a customer at this brothel in chinatown he's wearing the suit from used cars and then kind of all hell breaks loose right in the middle of that yeah the storms are like literally tearing the ceiling off the place and they uh they abduct meow yin because basically this is where we're going to get to meet or we're going to encounter Lopan's character aside from the scene we saw where Jack Burton runs through him with uh with the pork chop express um so yeah the next scene is when they have to figure out how to basically you know in- infiltrate Lopan's lair if you will yes back at the chinese restaurant and well, first of all, I just wanted to mention about that brothel scene before we leave it behind. Sure. You, know, you never want to leave the brothel behind. You want to stay a while. Um, <laughs> there's this great moment there. It's a couple of shots where the the storms are breaking in and basically everyone, all the people working there, all the sex workers and the clients, everyone, the madam, they're all just like trying to escape this place. And there's so much destruction of walls and like people <laughs> crashing through walls and everything like that. And yeah. I don't know, watching it this time like for the second time in a few weeks, I was thinking about how often you see that in John Carpenter movies, just people crashing through walls and floors and, you know, Michael Myers, like beating down a closet door and, and escape from New York and assault in precinct 13. There's so much just destruction of property. So I don't know if that's exactly a a sort of directorial trademark of John Carpenter, but the guy seems to really like to make holes in walls. Yeah, let me tell you something. If you ever want to see a filmmaker execute putting some holes in walls and property destruction, may I recommend 
Mr. John Carpenter. <laughs> yeah, 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 sure. I was going to say John Woo, too. He's a guy that uh, will oh, yeah. definitely, if there's a glass window in a John Woo movie, you know that shit's going to break. But yeah, <laughs> Carpenter seems to be very interested in just blowing holes in walls and ceilings and stuff like that. I and mean, we had a lot of that in Big Trouble in Little China. And it just kind of struck me, particularly in this scene, maybe it reminded me of Escape from New York so much because they were just escaping. But I don't know. Right. Interesting analysis. But yeah, then we move on to the Chinese restaurant, and this is a scene that I like because the character of Margot, the reporter, she's really funny in this scene, and she's not trying to be funny at all, right? Because every line of dialogue that she has is just a huge exposition dump, and I think the movie knows that, and I think the actress right. knows that, and so she's just like, it's almost like she's like reading out of a script. Do you get that feeling out of her? Yeah, sure. I can see that. Mm-hmm. She is just so funny. And I, I mean, I think it's intentional. I think they're trying to do it. I'm just looking up her name here. This poor actress who I'm referring to, Kate Burton. Hmm. Interesting. I wonder Burton. if there was any play on the Burton name there. Yeah, right. Well, you know Carpenter. You know, he loves to do that stuff. Yeah, probably I just, was. Uh, oh, she is definitely still working. She was just on Homeland not too long ago. Huh. Yeah, this is this is a um this is a pretty funny scene too, because we get to see uh Jack Burton is is definitely committed now at this point to um it's it's funny how you mentioned before on the on the, on the previous episode we were talking about like the dude kind of just wants to get his truck back you know and he's like uh but at the same time you can see that he's he does i think genuinely care about helping dennis dunn's character and he's like man you're not going in there alone i'm coming with you it's cool you see that you see that they do have a friendship yeah, he he's just he doesn't have time for all this exposition. He doesn't need the entire backstory of everything. It's like, let's just go do this thing. I, mean, <laughs> yeah. I guess, you know, like one of the things I've been thinking about with this movie, just sort of like mulling it over over the last few weeks is there are some interesting thematic things about the difference between what it means to be an American hero and a Chinese hero. And like American heroism is this kind of just take charge, get in there and kick ass kind of thing. Whereas Chinese heroism, you know, like Wang in this movie he's got all this martial arts training that we don't really learn about but you know there's more of like a spiritual focus and there's more of a sense that there's history and tradition that you have to understand before you just charge in and and start fighting kind of thing and yeah like this scene uh, the note i made here about the scene is this is where the john wayne voice just seems to really really kick in i mean kurt russell has said he's kind of emulating john wayne and, and his speech patterns and that distinctive sort of sneering vocal delivery that he does and you really see that here and then another thing that i love about this scene is he says call the president like you know if yeah. i don't come back call the president or something like that and that's got to be an escape from new york callback right yeah, and then in Escape from New York, I mean, he's kind of playing more the Eastwood kind of character. Yeah. That's a really interesting analysis, absolutely. Um, and it is, it's, again, Kurt Russell's just charming the pants off the, this role, you know. It's, I gotta tell you, Nick, talking about this movie last week and right now in the present, you know, I I really like all these movies, but this is one that I I talk about with a smile literally stuck on my face the whole time. It's just such a fun film. Um, I love how when they go, when they, when they get to low pans, we also get to see Jack Burton's kind of, uh, you know, how he's like sort of a, he's a swindler of sorts, you know, and they come up with this scheme to act like they're electricians to get past the security guards. 
Yeah, this scene is really funny. And one of the things that I love in this movie, as I was saying in our last episode, is this undercover thing that Jack Burton does, because he's really not very good at it. But it's just so fun to see Kurt Russell playing a character that is not his character. Like, he's Jack Burton playing a different character. It's I could see why he signed on to this movie. I mean, it had a lot to do with Carpenter, obviously, and their friendship. And he was not the first choice. By the way, just random bit of trivia that I read. Did you know that he turned down the lead role in Highlander to make this movie? really yes have you seen highlander right oh yeah i mean it was used to be on tv all the time when i was a kid yeah yeah sure well so did this movie um definitely right around the same period i I actually thought highlander was earlier than this but you know another one where if you were a a little boy growing up in the 80s yeah you definitely saw that on tv a lot you thought the idea was really cool like it's probably i haven't seen that movie in years and i'll bet it's not as good as i remember it being but i remember having a really good time with it but I, i could not imagine kurt russell playing that role yeah i can't either So anyway, where do we go from here? I mean, they get in this place. There's a couple of traps that they have to get through. And uh, oh, I got to mention, though, I love that scene where um, what what does he say, Nick? What's the dialogue when they go up to the door and there's the writing in Chinese? And he says, (laughs) and and he's like, can you read that? And he goes, yeah. And he and he translates it and he makes a joke out of it. Well, yeah, he Wang says it's like some kind of hell, like it sounds like some cursed place or something like that. And and Burton's like, really? And he's like, no, it just says keep out. But whatever he says, (laughs) ironically, like later on in the film, we haven't even gotten to this point yet, right? But as they go into this compound that's owned by Lopan, there's all these different rooms and they call them the hell of whatever. And it's it's these torture chambers basically. And so it's almost like Wang kind of knows about all that and he. He's just joking about it, but uh, eventually we actually see that happen. Right. You think he's trying to just keep, he doesn't want to freak Jack out or something like that, maybe. Yeah. Um, one of the things I love, it's just sort of a device that this movie uses, is they go down in an elevator here, and they're, they're looking at the buttons, and obviously all the writing is in Chinese, and, and uh, Jack can't read any of it. But I love when movies sort of use the space in that way, like, you know, you descend into like more dangerous, more and more dangerous levels of whatever this thing is, and, mm-hmm. you know, there's the elevator later on with the one button that takes you down into that wedding chamber or whatever we can't wait to talk about all that stuff but yeah this movie just has an interesting use of elevators like nothing ever happens on the elevators but it's always it's kind of just taking you to another stage another level of the story this movie is so much like a video game right like it's uh it is the the progression of it from level to level and and the way it's like different challenges even though it's kind of the same thing that we've been dealing with all along so yeah love the elevators i love also this scene is intercut with uh, another scene back at the Chinese restaurant, which is more backstory, more exposition. And Egg is just so funny in that. So I'm not sure if he's funny exactly, but I just love some of the stuff he has to say, right? Like the whole bit, there's this dialogue passage about Chinese religion and how it's like a salad bar where there's so many competing beliefs in China, because I guess it's just such a physically large place that to, to sort of have a, an overall Chinese mysticism, you're taking a little bit bit from here and a little bit from there and, and egg finally explains how you know ultimately underlying all of that is this balance of the furies you know good and evil the force kind of thing and that's what ends up playing out in the movie but as much as i think this movie needs more moments to slow down and develop its characters and stuff like that it does do a couple of times these like 
neat little intercut scenes that are like that. And as Jack and Wang are descending into this sort of mystical fortress, he's explaining basically why it is the way that it is. Yeah, that's a good point, too. It's not just, you know, the the population size of China that gives them all these competing ideologies or spiritual uh, ideologies, but it's just how old their civilization is, right? Well, sure, I that's mean, true, too. <laughs> so, yeah, Egg's great there, and again, he's kind of like the, you know, the man with the wisdom on, on what's going on, and um, as... Uh, Wang and Jack descend into this place. That's a cool scene too, where they, you know, the water comes into the elevator and then they have to swim through this, like swim through these skeletons. Um, oh yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's kinda... the hell of the upside down sinners. <laughs> I love the <laughs> Like the names of all that stuff is so much fun. They, I think later they mentioned the hell of the horny dragon, but we never get to see that one. I would really like to see the hell of the horny dragon. Yeah. yeah this is another scene where they're in the elevator and, and they're thinking about maybe climbing back up and Wang says something about the cable, like, well, it's, it's greased and it's however many stories high. And Jack says, well, it's real and we can tough it out. And that sort of sets up this thing with Jack where his beliefs are still so grounded that the stuff that he can beat, the things that he is not afraid of are just like real world kind of things. Like he'll fight the biggest person that you can throw at him. But when you got all this magic and all this like ancient mystical martial arts stuff that's what kind of freaks him out that's the stuff he knows he's like probably not going to hold up as well again so i I think it kind (laughs) of goes back to that idea about what kind of hero he is and you know maybe what kind of situations are not so suitable for a hero like i mean he's he's an outsider throughout this movie and even as we get to the end he never really fits into this world at all and all the things that are thrown at him are are completely new to him and everyone else just kind of seems almost comfortable with it like the chinese characters sure have a way of handling it that he doesn't and i just it's this really sort of neat thing that this movie does all the way through he uh like right after this they they get captured and they're being tortured and and Jack says fight like a man it's one of the storms i don't remember which one and instead of that he gets like this magical ball like thrown into his chest and it like shoots him across the room and you know that's how you defeat Jack Burton you're probably not going to beat him up close but if you use magic on him he has no idea how to handle magic so we see that a lot through this movie he said the the ball the magic ball was thrown as a thrown at him is it not blown at him though i think it's blown at him yeah it's, it's like yeah, he like blows it off his hand like he's blowing him a kiss or something it's, yes it's, it's pretty it's neat projected at him yeah that must be wind yeah yeah uh, there you go <laughs> no i'm sorry Durr, there is no uh, one. It, it's uh thunder rain and lightning that's thunder i think okay yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry hard... confusing them with the planeteers but whatever <laughs> same same basic principle right they have elemental powers wait a minute i thought it was raiden yeah, it's, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then Sub Zero and Scorpion show up. And that's when shit gets Noob really Noob <laughs> oh, Could never beat Noob Cybot. But yeah, that's a, a really fun scene. And then, like right around this point of the movie, we get a little bit more of a glimpse into Lopan's headquarters. And you know, it starts out in this warehouse. You know, sort of familiar looking like urban environment. And then we get these really ornate sets where, I mean, I'm sure they're not authentic at all, right? Like it looks more like a fancy Chinese restaurant than it does an actual place in China. Like, do you get that feeling from this movie? 
Yeah, sure. I see what you're saying. <laughs> Every set in this movie looks like a, a Chinese restaurant where you'd spend like $200 a plate. No, I was just going to say, it, it may not look like vintage authentic or whatever, but it's pretty pretty damn good looking set. Well, that's what I was going to say. The production design and the art direction on this movie are phenomenal. And like we end up in this room where it's where we first meet Lopan and it's the gong room with the statues kind of lining both of the walls, these golden statues. And it's just it's such an amazing set. Um, the one I really like is where where Meow is being held and she's kind of levitating in this very white room. And it, it looks, I don't know, kind of like a church type setting something like that and, mm-hmm. and like just amazing production design in this movie and because this movie moves so quickly you don't really get to spend a lot of time in any of these places i mean they come back to most of them later but i was just i was so impressed and looking up the production designer and the art director for this movie they were both like real real old school hollywood guys they have both since passed away they were pretty old when they made this movie but um i i will find their names let's give them the respect and credit that they deserve because they did a, a phenomenal phenomenal job on this movie wow kudos for looking into that oh yeah um, I, I mean i love production design so hold on we we will we will so, get that right well and while you're on that we find out i mean this is just another hilarious scene where jack and wang are, are you know they're t- tied up in the wheelchairs and this is where Lopan kind of has his monologue his opportunity to explain about this curse that's been put on him and how basically he he must marry a, a woman with green eyes in order to like appease this god that put the curse on him, right? Yeah, another exposition dump here, but another fun one. Sure, and it's, at least it's I, sort of interesting stuff. I love how and I love how Jack is just tooling with him the whole time. He's like he's like, come on, low pan. He's like he's like, you've had all this time and you couldn't find the right woman yet. You know, just just great one-liners here from Jack Burton. Yeah, this is a really funny scene. Um, So the production designer is John J. Lloyd, and the art director is a guy named Les Gobrugi. And mm. like I said, they both, you know, like, I think they were born in the teens and the 20s. I don't remember which oh was which, God. but they were just sort of in the movie industry for decades. And both of them, this was one of the last films that they actually worked on. I think they, they retired or maybe passed away later on in the 80s or the early 90s. So this is kind of the culmination of their careers. And and they really got to go all out with this. You know, they probably raided so many like Asian thrift stores and, and flea markets and antique stores and things like that. And and just the stuff that they built for this movie is uh, like every set is something interesting. We get sewers, we get warehouses, we get the incredible place where the, the wedding takes place later in the film that I can't wait to talk about. So just wanted to give those guys some credit. Um, what I love about this scene with Lopan, the sort of old form of Lopan pan uh is how crotchety and wrinkly and just sort of like the first time we see him he's got this stringy ass hair his skin kind of like it's not like he has liver spots it's like his skin is all just a one big liver spot and he's it's so funny to see this character who is the grand ultimate villain of this movie and he's just this shriveled old dude (laughs) and like the first time he comes into the room he's like putting his hand up to his ear like he's straining to hear what jack is saying and i just think that's so funny because he is incredibly powerful and he is this imposing villain we've seen the ghostly sort of projection of him that that as you were saying gets hit by the truck or the truck kind of passes through him earlier in the movie but it's just it's such a fun villain reveal because how many other movies have a villain that's like that where he's just this this shriveled like almost kind of like friendly looking old man 
Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's and I mean, and Jack totally calls him out on that. He's like, "You're low pan." <laughs> yes, right. I like later. I I think it's way later in the movie, but he just calls him Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't notice that. Oh yeah, that's um, perfect. Um, he also like Jack Burton is so funny in this scene. Like, I think his line. I I wrote this down. I think it's for this scene. I'm supposed to buy this shit. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like that seems to be kind of his reaction to everything through this movie and yeah you could see that i think that's very much in character for him one of the funniest scenes in this movie is coming up which is obviously when jack burton is rolling down uh <laughs> downhill backwards <laughs> in in the wheelchair towards the uh the bottomless pit or, oh, or that, whatever it is oh my god it's so funny. what an amazing shot I, I was saying on the last episode this movie has so much influence from silent film comedy and this scene like really sort of crystallizes that he's rolling backwards in this wheelchair down a ramp there's two guys with machine guns and the wheelchair just blows through the both of them and because they get hit in this movie they fly off they don't just get knocked over but they fly out of the shot as we yeah. see a lot later on i mean that's that's a very hong kong that's a very chinese cinema kind of thing to do where characters when they get punched in the chest or something they fly back or when they get shot they fly somewhere uh so we get that and then we get a literal cliffhanger he's hanging over the edge of this bottomless pit it's like a well or something in, in lopan's compound and it just feels so silent movie to me and it's just such a fun and cool little sequence i mean we don't really see anything else quite like that here that's a great point. I would have never uh, picked up on the correlation between some of these action sequences and silent film, which I mean, I have not seen a lot of. But um, yeah, this 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 whole thing's great. And basically, this is where Jack and Jack and Wang are now kind of like making their escape or attempting to. Uh, yeah, or at least they're not prisoners anymore at this point. There's a um, fun scene with Jack and Wang and Eddie where they have three guns and they're like trading guns. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what, he like asks Jack if he's ever shot someone before. Yeah. And he's, and he, and he's just like, yeah, of course, you know, yep. or whatever it is. I mean, Typical just... American bravado there. Yeah. But he ends up with that machine pistol that, you know, he has in the poster. And there's a double barreled shotgun here that never gets used and a revolver. And there's this funny little slapstick scene where they're just trying to decide who gets what gun and who's going to look the coolest. I think it's probably a looks thing. Like, which one will you look the most badass holding? And uh, I think this is where somewhere around here is uh, they mentioned the hell of the horny dragon, which, as I said, I would really like to see. <laughs> yep and um so while they're trying to get out that's actually ends up being pretty good timing because the rest of their friends come into low pans layer and their their cover is they're trying to say that you know they're doing like a research project um on the building or something like that so we get Margot here and uh kim cattrell ah damn i can't think of her character's name off the top of my head right now gracie law ah, jessica gracie attorney duh um, you know, and, and they come in and, and basically, uh, they get captured pretty quickly. They get like smoked out or something. They, they, they get hit with like some sleeping gas in the elevator. And so, so now, you know, it's, it's the, the mission becomes more than, uh, just trying to find Miao Yin. It's like they, they now have to rescue their friends as well. Um, yeah, this is a really fun sequence. Uh, so this sets up this kind of prison break sequence where Jack is climbing up the wall. To, they're they're put in these wire cages, and uh, and so Jack goes in to do the actual rescuing, and Wang and Eddie. Eddie is uh, kind of. 
uh, like he kind of shows up out of nowhere. I mean, we don't know much about him in this film. He's kind of the more heavy set guy and ends up with Margot at the end. There's this cute kind of scene where everybody gets paired off at the end of this movie. But mm-hmm. him and Wang sort of team up. They both have incredible martial arts skills that we didn't really know much about. And there's a really great fight scene. There's these four female uh, hench hench women of of Lopan, and yep. they're all dressed in black like karate geese, and they fight these two guys, and it's a great sequence. Like one of them has a staff, and they're fighting on this wooden catwalk, and like just lots of flips and kicks and breaking stuff, and that really John Carpentery kind of pulsating beat of a soundtrack kicks in here, and I really like this scene. I mean, it's it's maybe. I want to call it the most long take laden fight scene in this movie. And I love long takes, particularly when we're talking about fight scenes and martial arts and things like that. I love to just see it play out in front of me and not just be cut, 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 cut. And we get a lot of neat shots here where they're just fighting on this catwalk. And of course, you know, our our two guys, our two heroes eventually win here, but this is really, it's a very well directed scene, I think. And, and it's definitely different from what we're used to with John Carpenter and he handled it really well. Yeah. I got to tell you, Wang is not to make another mortal Kombat reference here, but we find (laughs) out this guy's, this guy's basically like Liu Kang up in here. Yeah. He can almost do a bicycle kick. He basically does it later in the movie. Uh, So much influence (laughs) from this movie on lots of other (laughs) things. It's not just mortal Kombat. I mean, I guess this was just a good one to rip off. I understand why. Yeah. So they successfully get everyone out of the out of the um the cells here and more comedy ensues as they try to escape. I love the scene coming up here um where they have to jump back into the green toxic looking water and swim through the underground tunnel to get to the other side. And that's cool because we know that they have to do this because earlier on in the movie, you know, we we see Jack and Wang go through as you know as they're trying to get inside um so they all as a group have to kind of jump in and swim through this thing the whole place is like an obstacle course right like you swim through this and then you go down the elevator and you fight these three guys and it's it's very much like a video game or i don't know that scene kind of reminded me of this is ridiculous but like remember going to discovery zone when you were a kid i was trying to to think (laughs) like climb through the tunnel and well, I wasn't thinking Discovery Zone. I was trying to think of a, of a different reference. Was it like totally reminds me of like a like a late eighties, early nineties game show kind of yes, thing? Yes, like a Legend of the Hidden Temple, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it's, to- it's totally that. <laughs> like it's almost like the place is designed for that. Like, oh, if you break in, then this is how hard it's going to be to escape. You have to go through the obstacle course, and then we get this. Like, I don't know if we want to call it a love scene in the tunnel, but this is where Jack and Gracie kiss for the first time. And Gracie is just kind of not having it. She's an independent woman. And the fact that he just sort of grabs her and starts making out with her, she's not okay with that. Just happy to be alive. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't think that'll fly anymore. Maybe in the 80s. Definitely not not in the Me Too era. But it is kind of a fun sequence because she's looking for him, right? Everybody's coming through and it's a very slapsticky sequence. Where's this person? Where's this person? Where's Jack? And then Jack shows up and she should be really happy to see him. So he just, you know, basically takes advantage of her there. Not not his finest moment in this movie. And and then Jack walks into into the room full of everyone and basically tells them all to calm down because he's there like it's it's great you yes know? Like, don't worry well, guys i'm here 
Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, again, it's that American action hero kind of thing, right? We should be following this guy when really he's usually kind of mentally lagging behind everybody else. So they get out of there. They end up in this warehouse room, another one of these sort of nondescript warehouse rooms. There's this roll down door. And I love this shot. Jack oh, is just standing it. in front of the door. and He's like, yeah, just leave this to me. We're almost out of here. And he opens the door. And one of my favorite 80s action movie character actors, the great Al Leong. He's standing right behind the door, and there's yes. like an army of dudes right behind him. <laughs> so Jack just like immediately shuts the door in his face. It's so funny. Yeah, what's he say when he turns around and looks at the rest of the group? He says something like, what does he say? I don't got it, or something like that. I, yeah, I yeah, yeah, yeah. I got this, and he's like, I don't got this. Yeah, I, yeah. you know, Al Leong, right? Are you familiar with oh, that guy at all? I, I don't know him by name, but I've I have seen that guy in so many movies. Yeah, he's in Die Hard. He's the guy I always remember him because I watch Die Hard every year. He's the ah. terrorist who goes into the little. Um, there's like a. a a snack counter at the Nakatomi Plaza in the lobby. And he's waiting there for the cops to come in. And there's a Nestle crunch bar that he grabs and he just starts eating a candy bar. And nice. Like, I don't remember. I've seen that movie about a hundred times. and I don't remember when he gets killed in that movie, but I always remember the scene of him eating candy in like the middle of a shootout. He was in like, there's actually a documentary about him that I've been meaning to see, but Al Leong hmm. was uh, just like a supporting character or like, you know, a bit player in like every big eighties action movie. And if you watch a lot of those, I remember kind of just seeing them on TV back in the day, like action Jackson and those kind of movies. And he's in like every single, single one of them and he barely ever even gets a line of dialogue i don't think he ever speaks in this movie no i i i am 100 certain he does not actually um, <laughs> so hats off to al leong we all know you but we don't know you yeah and then this this particular fight sequence here is again just a great mix of martial arts and comedy because we get to see Wang's fighting abilities and how awesome he is. He just handles this whole like squad of dudes. Wang Mean is amazing in the sequence. Right. And like, meanwhile, Jack Burton's just fumbling around, like trying to like collect his knife and, and his gun and everything. And it, what could be funnier than this guy? Like as soon as he gets ready to join the fight and just comes around the corner, you know, ah, and he's got his knife out and he's just looking at Wang and this is all the bodies are on the ground. He's like, yep, already took care of that. So. Oh, that's great. Yeah, well, he first, he pulls out that machine pistol. He fires off the whole clip. He kills a couple of guys. It's not like he misses with all those shots, <laughs> but there's like a dozen or two dozen other dudes right behind him. So it kind of does nothing. It just delays them for five seconds. And then Wang's just like flipping all of the room and doing these crazy high kicks. He jumps up and grabs a pipe and kicks Al Leong in the face. And it's a great action scene that Jack Burton is, again, kind of not really there for all of it. In fact, he's not really there for much of it. He's not there for 90% of it. And <laughs> like, you know, I another thing I noticed about the way that that uh, Wang's martial arts are kind of revealed to us in the in the movie is, you know, when we first see him fight, it, it, no doubt he's a skilled fighter. Then in this scene, there's kind of like this escalation or this exaggeration on the martial arts where like as we get further and further into the movie, the stuff that he can do just gets more and more over the top you know yes like the uh the the jumping is is crazier higher heights the flipping is is you know more prevalent just it's crazy it's like we're watching his style sort of uh 
I don't know if, if elevate is the right word, just kind of evolve in ridiculousness as the movie goes on. Yeah, like he by the end of the movie, he's as powerful as the storms are. He kills one of them. He, it, I mean, there's an incredible scene that we'll talk about later where they're like flying through the air. They're doing that very Hong Kong kind of martial arts movement where literally even gravity kind of doesn't play any role in it so yeah I, I mean where he got that all from as, as I've been saying I don't know I want to know more about Wang I guess I mean Wang is really he's the hero of this movie Jack is maybe fun and he's interesting in other ways but Wang is the one who really handles all the business so how he got that way I do not know um, what is really fun here so this is just about an hour into the movie it's about 57 58 uh, minutes into the movie and they're finally getting out of the compound and then out of nowhere this monster shows up like we have been not prepared for this at all and we see these two eyeballs behind a painting that all you know cartoon trick like in the haunted house cartoons and a couple of seconds later Gracie gets yanked back into to Lopan's compound by a hairy monster hand and then right after that uh, you know a scene later we see this like hairy troll monster that is apparently on Lopan's payroll it looks like a giant orangutan yeah, 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 with like this elongated face. And it's a very cool creature design. The sound design is good with it. You know, it just kind of grunts and does creature stuff. It sounds, it reminds me very much of like the 80s monster movie kind of look and feel and sound. And it's great, but this really, I mean, there's so much in this movie that'll just catch you completely off guard. And I'm sure it's designed that way, but like, okay, we're upping the ante again. You liked all those supernatural martial arts warriors. Well, now here's a monster just because. Right. And so low pan is, of course, Gracie also has the green eyes and you know, now it's like, this is part of the low pan. Eventually we'll see later on in the movie that the, the, the fates are just are decided that he's going to, marry both of them which is a little confusing at first because i know at one point again he needs to make a sacrifice to lift this curse off of him but either way now he he has meow yin and gracie in his uh in his possession and the the rest of the crew gets out onto the um escape bus is this the bus that that um Egg uses to do the the tours with, or is yeah, it, yeah, yeah, it's, it's it Egg Fuyong okay. tours that bus, yeah, okay, and that's when they realize that that Gracie is is missing. Yeah, this is interesting to me just structurally in terms of this movie. I mean, it, it's very kind of loosely structured almost where this is the act two break. Like there's a point in most films at the end of act two, it's about a half hour before the end of the movie where kind of all is lost and the plan has to change and the characters kind of go in a different direction. Like they actually have to go back and do something that they weren't able to do before. And I mean, it's a very sort of clear act two break but it comes way earlier in this movie than we're used to and there's so much more to go i mean we're talking about just leading up to the brothel scene all the action scenes we had seen to that point and then we've been talking for like the past half hour about all the action scenes just between then and now and we still have 40 minutes of this movie left to go yeah and this is where the movie goes absolutely nuts and um <laughs> we <clears throat> we get to get more of um I really love how we get to get some more of uh, Egg's character in the movie here. And we're basically, you know, hanging out with, with him and his crew. They get some of his boys together so that they have some more muscle on their team. 
and they go into this like underground tunnel, which I don't really understand. I, I guess like he has access to this tunnel that gets them back into low pans. But I mean, they they go through the floor right in his like <clears throat> restaurant, right? I think so, yeah. And they go into the sewers, which leads them to this tunnel. I don't know. The geography of all this probably wasn't worked out all that carefully. It's not one of those kind of movies for sure. Sure, but, sure. But this is a really fun sequence. Uh, it feels like something out of a monster movie. The black blood of the earth. Jack says something like, that's not water. And Egg tells him all this stuff about the black blood of the earth and how it's this mystical, legendary thing. And Jack is just kind of like, oh, no, that's oil because he's American. And that's just such an American way of looking at that thing. Um, but yeah. then eventually they're just walking by this hole in the wall and this like alien creature jumps out of it and pulls a guy in and Egg has to defeat this monster that we never see again. Yeah, the, I love the random monstrosities that just pop up. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I'm trying to think of where to go from here because we see a couple of things. This is when they drink the potion or shortly after they, they drink this potion that, you know, Egg pulls out and says, basically, this will make you feel like Invincible. Um, <laughs> yes, and then Jack later on says, "I feel invincible." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, which is what they need to go into this battle. Uh, it's going to be ridiculous. Yeah, the the final clash in this movie. I really, really like. There's this moment where they are just drinking the potions. They have these goblets. They end up in a, a room that has a bar, which is perfect. Yep. Just a, a nice sort of uh, happy accident there, and so he pours out this potion whatever it is for them and it's it's jack and wang and egg and they have this like i i don't know exactly what they're reciting there it's some kind of military creed but it's uh it's an american kind of thing a very american sort of way of of looking at war and looking at heroism and the fighting spirit but they're also mm -hmm. steeped in this ancient chinese thing and i just think that's a, a pretty cool little moment there and it's this neat little bit of camaraderie before things get just super crazy later on yeah and I, i'm trying to recall exactly how there's a way that low pan can kind of like mentally detect that eggs present <laughs> well it's because of his other monster that very oh, yes eyeball filled spherical thing that reminds me so much of the beach ball in dark star that just kind of floats into frame completely unexpected <laughs> like the reveal of that is so cool too like we just see the back of it and then the characters notice it and we see its face and it's gross and it's full of eyeballs and it's like oh now we got an eyeball monster yeah it's basically like the it's his it's like lopan's uh, security camera or uh, yes you know yeah. his it's his surveillance is just this like <laughs> floating head with a bunch of eyes on it it's and, a drone um, it's a, it's an early version of a drone it's a biological drone and of course jack exactly jack shoots that. at it it's not successful it just flies away and he's just like oh you know whatever hey you never know till you try <laughs> i think he says <laughs> because again that's that's what Jack has, right? Just sort of brute force. And these things don't really respond well to brute force. Um, what I wanted to mention before, it's, it's just prior to the scene, but there's this amazing just moment visually just before this where Gracie and Meow are in that 
white sort of chamber that they're being held in and they've got these headdresses on and their eyes roll back in their head so you just see mm-hmm. the whites of their eyes and like if you just turned on this movie right during that sequence you would think this was like some kind of art film like the kind of thing that would be shown at MoMA and uh <laughs> It's this very like interesting bit of production design that again like we're we're just not really prepared for it and they have these amazing like red gowns on and the costuming in this movie they look like they spent a lot of money and a lot of time on it and it's just beautiful to look at. I guess I, I'm also very much in love with uh, I think her name is Susie Pye the actress that plays Meow Lee so it might have something to do with that too. Yeah, uh, she's a looker, no question. But no, that's a that's a that is a awesome scene and i'm glad you brought it up because eventually that that becomes kind of important (laughs) when the whole ceremony begins because we get the storms like each storm kind of does their own martial arts routine which i think is really cool because all these guys obviously know what they're doing yeah yeah where they're just sort of they do like a series of moves and it 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 sets up this magical thing where they can be levitated into the air holding on to these joined swords that's a cool shot too where yes. you've got Susie Pye and Kim Cattrall just sort of floating in a trance, holding on to this sword, but it's not cutting them, and they fly up to the ceiling and touch this thing. I mean, it's all kind of ridiculous, but also awesome looking. Yep. Yep. And um, so how would we set up the the end, the kind of finale scene here? Because this is this is where everything just goes crazy. Like in, in a similar way to, I think of like, um, of course with nowhere near the amount of violence and bloodshed, but I think of like the end of kill bill volume one. Um, you know, when we have the scene with the crazy 88 and all that, yeah, like a from dusk till dawn kind of final showdown. Yeah, 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 totally. And, uh, this of course is awesome because it, the, probably one of the, uh, funnier moments here in the well, it, that's the thing is that there's so many comedic moments in this movie but when jack burton shoots the ceiling and then the 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 ceiling just falls on his head and knocks him out like yes yeah I, well I, that's such a classic scene right like everyone's just getting ready to fight and they're all like oh and <laughs> you know jack not being a martial arts guy he's not sort of preparing his moves he's shooting his gun into the air and a chunk of the ceiling like beans him right in the head falls directly on him very elmer fudd kind of thing very cartoony and there's this great shot of him that i love where everybody else is charging into the fight and his body is just on the floor unconscious <laughs> yeah again he's not there for like 90 percent of this epic clash yeah you know he's and like something about that shot that's so funny right like because we know he's knocked out but carpenter is just like no i'm gonna show you this for another couple seconds just because it's funny to see everyone else kind of running past him um also just before this uh, there's so much that i want to talk about in the sequence this is when that eyeball monster shows up and wang just kind of stabs it in the face and deflates it yep Yep. really really funny the set for this room is my favorite thing in the movie I could see that. Sure. It looks like there's neon everywhere, completely unexplained, even though it's like this ancient temple or whatever that it's supposed to be. It's got neon, uh, this big neon skull and like neon piping all over the place. And it's just this very sort of almost like 
futuristic but classical sort of setting. It reminds me so much of Nicholas Winding Refn. I know you've seen Drive. I know you've seen Only God Forgives because I've mm-hmm. made you watch that movie. And just sort of like the dragon imagery and the neon it and the, the sort of darkness of the lighting here that's all around that really reminds me of his style which i like a lot and there's just so much cool stuff to look at just going on around these characters like it's not only a really fun scene for what's happening in it but just the set is incredible and there's an escalator somehow um what <laughs> in this ancient temple one of the key sort of focal points of this temple is an escalator where lopan rides down into the the center of this conflagration i i love this i mean this is just it's pure cinema, I want to say. It's just total creativity and, you know, damn the rules and forget why any of this is here. It all looks cool, so it's here. We're just going to do it. Yeah, it is pretty fascinating to look at. And um, the all of the, the fighting that goes on here is just crazy. I mean, it's awesome. this is like, yeah. it's, it's, it's like taken, uh, obviously, huge influence from, you know, probably a lot of the early, like, Shaw Brothers kung fu movies. I mean, you've got if you have never seen this movie, we we've been spoiling every scene of it, but uh it is really just like people flying everywhere back and forth again. This is where we see Wang just really at the at the height of his prowess as far as uh being a fighter. And uh Jack does help out a little bit here. Uh, once he regains consciousness from being knocked out by the uh, chunk of ceiling that fell on his head, that he... yeah, he he gets up pretty quickly actually. Like I, <laughs> even just from seeing it a couple weeks ago to seeing it again tonight, I was like, oh, I thought he was out for a lot longer. So it, it's not that bad. But again, it's it's really it's the Wang show here. I mean, he's flying all over the room. He kind of gets into a, a one one on one clash with uh, Rain, played by Peter Kwong, and the two of them are just coming at each other with swords and like clashing swords in midair. And it's just, it's this really kinetic, amazing sort of acrobatic sequence. And it goes on for quite a while. I mean, it, it's really, it's very epic in a lot of ways. There's lots of characters fighting. Almost every shot, there's just something cool that, that you don't really see anywhere else in the movie. I mean, it's, it's kind of an incredible finale. It's not exactly the finale. Well, it's it's not exactly the ending, but it's definitely the finale of the movie. It's definitely like the the, the critical battle, if you will. Um, because now, I mean, Lopan kind of gets away with what he was looking to accomplish. Transforms, um, he was able to get as far as extracting, there's some kind of ritual he was doing with Gracie and, uh, Yao Yin with the, uh, he's like, you know, extracting blood from them or something like that. Am I right? The yeah. thing with the needles, I, I don't quite understand all of this stuff. And then, like you were saying before, so now he's going to marry both of them, but he has to make a sacrifice. So I think the idea is he's going to marry both of them so he can kill one and still be married to the other one. But I don't sure. exactly know that that's what it is. And I don't really get this ritual, but it is just kind of the thing that sets up this scene. And it doesn't really pay off it doesn't really do anything anyway but we get just so much stuff going on uh egg and lopan get into a little avatar fight in this sequence which i really really like you you remember that part oh yes yep that's right (laughs) like 
it's kind of, again, one of those things that just sort of comes out of nowhere, but they both cast a spell basically and it creates a little avatar for them so one of them is i think green light like bathed in green light the other one's bathed in purple light and it's just these two warriors these two mystical warriors just fighting each other in the middle of the room and they're controlling them and there's this great shot of Lopan where he's like wiggling his thumbs like he's playing a video game I was going to say, this is so video gamey. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's like they're playing Street Fighter or something like that. And it's just, uh, you know, again, it's not a thing that really pays off very much. Like it kind of just fizzles out. But it's a really fun, interesting thing that, that just shows up in the scene. It's there and then it's gone. Right. But he, he so he successfully defeats Lo Pan, though, correct? Egg, egg. Does Egg kill? How does? No, that's not right. That's not no, right. No, no, that's the I'm next. Uh, yeah. We have to talk about the way Lopan goes out in this movie because I don't think it really does him justice. Um, yeah, so this battle eventually is resolved. Wang kills Rain, and then basically they've won. Uh, you know, the only one left that they really need to worry about is Lopan himself. And so we get this final showdown between Jack and Lopan, and it's all he has left is his knife. And there's a scene in an elevator, of course, <laughs> with uh, with Jack and Gracie and he yeah. chucks the knife at him and he misses and it's just kind of like limply falls to the ground and Gracie gives him this great look there like oh shit I thought you knew how to use that thing but right yeah like what ends up happening here is uh Lopan picks up the knife and he's still being a little cocky considering that like all of his henchmen have been killed at this point and he chucks the knife back at Jack and Jack is somehow able to catch it and throw it back at him and hit him right in the forehead and kill him and I'm thinking why like what what is it that happened in that moment that he was all of a sudden able to catch a knife and what I think it is like it probably has something to do with the potion right it has to, because the the first time he throws that knife, it's clear that he's never thrown a knife before in his life. Right. Well, maybe that's it. Maybe he just needed that one practice throw. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's what the potion does, man. The potion just, like, enhances your learning abilities. So, you know, yeah, you throw, but if you throw a knife once wildly, the second time you do it, it's going to be with supreme accuracy. Maybe that's why the first time he fires his gun in the previous scene, he hits the ceiling and drops the chunks of it on his head. But after that, he's pretty much good. But yeah, I'd love to see. I mean, if this movie were made today, you know, there would be some kind of shot there, like a Matrix bullet time kind of thing where he sees the knife flying at him and he knows how to reach out and catch it so it won't stab him or whatever. Um, I don't know. It just feels kind of anticlimactic, especially because the scene just before this is this amazing epic fight sequence that goes on for like 10 minutes. And now here's the main villain of the movie and he just kind of takes a knife to the head and he goes down and he's done and that's it. Right. And and it's like the it's really the storms that are more of the challenge for everybody. Well, that's true. Even 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 on their way out, you know, they, they still have to deal with lightning and thunder. So, yes. you know, I mean, Wang killed rain already, but there's encounters, you know, in these basically in the in the caverns, if you will. Um, where they still have to fight off Lightning, who I love how he gets killed with the giant statue uh, falling on him. Well, and, that's cool, uh, but also Thunder has a pretty good death scene also. I'm trying to remember how Thunder dies here. <laughs> He's the one that inflates himself and gets really fat and then explodes. Oh, yes! <laughs> Into like a bunch of chunks of latex and green stuff. It's great. Yeah, when you don't think this movie can get more over the top, it just does. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and it's constant. It looks a lot like the guy. Have you ever seen Monty Python's The Meaning of Life? Yes, and it's funny you, <laughs> you, you mentioned that. 
um, there's a there's a scene where that is referenced uh, when I was telling you I was watching the Never Sleep Again documentary. Have you ever have you ever seen uh, a Nightmare on Elm Street five, The Dream Child? Yeah, I sort of remember a gag like that in one of those movies too, where someone just like eats themselves to the point where they explode. Yeah, and and apparently, according to this documentary, that was uh, the Monty Python meaning of life scene uh, from that movie was certainly uh, where the idea had come from, or was one of the sources they used for that idea. Yeah, um, it's again a very cartoony, very silly special effect, but it's fine at this point in this movie. You'll accept pretty much anything, so they they just sort of throw everything at you. I can't believe this movie was made, and it's just so damn fun. Yeah. And uh, it really kind of breaks the barriers. Um, it's it's a movie that I intend on watching on a regular basis for many, many years to come, and it's a movie that I really want to share with people that haven't seen it uh, because it's one you can share with confidence if they're willing to just watch a wacky movie that's really well done. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a very high bar to clear there. Like, you really have to like wacky, because this movie is, I mean, that's the perfect word for it. This is kind of a, it's a live action Warner Brothers cartoon or something like that. I mean, it, it gets that silly, and you just sort of have to go with it. And and I think you can, particularly because it's, it's witty in a lot of ways, and Jack Burton is such a fun character, and the visuals are so appealing. I mean, I have my problems with this movie. This is not a great script. Uh, the, those exposition dumps do get really tiring after a while, and, and I feel like there's you know this could have maybe used a few more passes before they started making it but when you're in the moment of it like i, I enjoyed watching it just the second time um you know in the, in the previous few weeks just sort of uh, absorbing all of these flashy cool things that are happening uh, all over again there's a great shot just uh, you know we've gotten basically to the end of the movie here but when they get back in the pork chop express which is awesome uh you know it's, it's great to see that truck one more time before we go and they back out of the the garage door of Lopan's compound and they're driving down the street and these police cars and fire trucks start passing them and they turn down the other way and they're all heading the the cops and the, the firefighters are going to Lopan's and I'm thinking well they're gonna find some pretty crazy shit in there aren't they yes yeah <laughs> like, that, that is what, yep <laughs> I almost want to see just like a, a short film about the cops and the firefighters arriving there and seeing the remains of, of that exploded guy and the neon chamber with the escalator and all that like I mean I guess this whole Chinatown thing is about to be exposed like I'm surprised this movie I, I mean I'm sure it exists in some form but I'm, I'm surprised this movie doesn't have a direct sequel because I feel like you could easily pick up this story and and have another similar thing I mean you'd really have to go over the top to, to outdo this one but it's it seems rife for that but unfortunately it was not a huge box office success no it was not and as we've talked about from the beginning of this show as as most of Carpenter's movies were not financial successes until you know they're, they're movies that took a while to to become classics or or appreciated to their their fullest um i don't know i think uh, from the recent a little bit of research that i've done you know i think this this movie just really was mismarketed and misunderstood sure um but there's always a, a cocktail of different reasons of why a movie may or 
may or may not do well, and it really doesn't have much to do with how good the movie actually is sometimes. Oh, no, so, you of know, We look at, he's the, the most classic example of that is The Thing, and when we talked about how that movie was so hated when it came out and lost all this money, and now everyone knows it's John Carpenter's best movie. I mean, people look back at that movie now and say, wow, this is really great, and I think Big Trouble is a movie that has a lot of those same properties, where, like, over time, you know, maybe, like, 10 years after it came out, um, you know, VHS is everywhere at this point, uh, getting close to the DVD era. And I think this is a movie that people went back to, people re-reviewed, and uh, it's definitely been reviewed in a, in a much more positive light than when it was released. So I guess, in a way, it's aged well. I think so. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's a cult classic. And like I was saying last episode, like I saw this movie in bits and pieces on television when I was a kid, but just sort of talking about the last episode to friends and people I know and, and on social media and things like that, people love this movie. Like a lot of people grew up with this movie and rented this from the video store and got to know it that way. Like, I don't know anybody who saw it in the theater, I don't think, but I know a lot of people who this was one of those staple films that they had a copy of or they continually rented and they really got to know. It. I mean, I didn't have that experience. Uh, you know, I, I just kind of saw a little bit of it on TV and watched it in its entirety later, but I didn't grow up with this movie. It wasn't like a, a favorite, a perennial favorite of mine, but you could easily see it being that way. And I guess that's something that, that we do have to sort of mention about Carpenter is he is one of the filmmakers that really benefited maybe from the VHS era and the idea that films maybe don't necessarily need to be seen in a theater. I mean, that's a discussion that they're having a whole lot of recently uh, and, and, you know, Know, what what direction theatrical distribution is going to go and are people going to go back to the movies but there was something sort of similar to that in the 80s where all of a sudden you had access to movies at home that you could rent fairly inexpensively and and see lots and lots of times if you wanted to kind of on demand which is something we really take for granted now and that's how a lot of these films like the thing you mentioned I mean I think all of the Carpenter movies definitely benefited from that and so many of them do fall into this cult classic category where maybe it didn't make a ton of money during its theatrical run but you've got people who grew up with it and, and consider it one of their favorite movies and this is definitely one of them um you know i was very surprised just at, at kind of the response just talking about this movie yeah it's like this is beloved yep and since then now they have you know board games and card games and action figures and just all that there's tons all the different vinyl releases they've done of this uh i believe there was a comic book at some point based off this movie so uh yeah you know that's when you know you've definitely hit the 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 cult level status um well i think what's interesting here is is kind of uh where we go next in in the filmography because you know what man i think this movie coming out um, and not really being a box office success and probably ultimately losing money in the long run or at least close in time frame proximity of when it came out. Uh, this gets into one of my favorite periods of uh, Carpenter's career here, how he closes out the 80s with uh, Prince of Darkness and They Live because I think he kind of was like, all right, I'm not doing the big studio commercial kind of stuff anymore. I'm just going to kind of take it back to my roots and do like low budget horror sci-fi. Yeah. 
which is a cool thing to do at this point in your career, right? Because I, yeah. I, I don't know this for a fact, but you make an unsuccessful studio film like Carpenter did with The Thing. And so then you sort of take on some projects that are not your dream projects. You do Christine and Starman, which are very much studio kind of movies that are not exactly what he's known for. They, they're kind of different genres than he's worked with and different subject matter than he's worked with. And, and you know, you can see in those movies that his heart's in them, but it's not completely in them so he could they're, they're, they're competent films yeah they're they're good films i think they're both very good films but they are not to me at least they're not signature carpenter works no. and after big trouble in little china which i guess kind of is and kind of isn't he could have probably taken a lot of work for hire but instead of that he does basically independent films again and although i have not seen prince of darkness i have seen they live and and definitely i get a much grittier sort of old school carpenter feel from that than uh, than i do from something like this one yeah it's it's about to get dark which i like but this this movie, I think, at the end of the day, is one that we both love and appreciate. So you know, I said last episode, uh, love is kind of a strong word because I do see the flaws in this one. But if you told me, like, let's let's have a couple beers and watch Big Trouble in Little China right now, I wouldn't say no. Absolutely, great movie to have a few beers to. Great hangover movie. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, again, it's uh, it's one of those TV afternoon sort of favorites. Any other final thoughts on this film? I mean, we, I think we've covered it pretty well. We definitely talked about almost everything in it. It's maybe not the most interesting production and pre-production uh, in the Carpenter world, but just sort of the movie itself has so much to talk about that you can easily burn two episodes on on just that. Yeah, I think in, I think in a lot of these movies we could talk about for, you know, 10 hours, but in, in two and a half, I think we covered, you know, our favorite scenes, the main things that happened in the movie, some of the origins of the movie and, and how it's been viewed kind of in, in a historical lens. So, um, no, I just wanted to say, as, as we were commenting before in our like text message last night, I'm just really happy that we're keeping this this going and it's just been really fun to, to do this whole thing in in sequence. So <clears throat> next will be uh, 1987's Prince of Darkness, unless you have uh, any other plans. No, I, I'm really looking forward to watching and eventually talking about Prince of Darkness. Good. Right on then. I'd say that's a that's a wrap. Yeah, so uh, as we move on to the late 80s period of Carpenter, we would love to hear back from you, the listeners of the show. We've made our way through a lot of the filmography at this point, but we do still have a long way to go, and, and we really appreciate the feedback, and we love hearing from you, and uh, we'd love to know your thoughts about this film and those to come, or anything else Carpenter-related you want to discuss. If you want to get a hold of us by email, we're at precinct13podcast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter, at 13precinct, facebook.com slash one three precinct and our website where you can download this episode and all of our episodes and you can find all of the subscription links we'd really appreciate if you subscribe to the show it is precinct13.simplecast.com if you get a couple of minutes and i know you have a couple of minutes because you're probably on lockdown too write us a review we would love to uh, to have that on itunes or any other podcast service let us know what you think of the show we would very much appreciate that uh with that i guess we're back to horror territory Oh my God, I cannot wait. I'm pretty excited. I'm also a big Dennis Dunn fan now, so I'm looking forward to seeing him again. And Victor Wong, and we get the, the great Donald Pleasance, or as I just call I just call him Loomis all the time. He's just Loomis to me now. <laughs> He'd probably get pissed about that. Yeah. <laughs> 
unfortunately no longer with it. You know, a lot of these Carpenter actors, not to go off on another tangent at the end of the show, but very, uh, like a, a large number of these actors are still working and will go to conventions and, and they have this amazing sort of cult fan base. So I feel like at some point, like I'd love to do a live episode when we have things like conventions again, which could be a very, very long time. I would love to just go meet some of these people because they all seem very cool. And, and I would love to hear the behind the scenes Carpenter stories. Oh, my God. Yes, it will happen. <clears throat> it, but <laughs> we all we need to do is just remain, remain optimistic that we will have conventions again someday. I'm sure. Yeah. But- so stay home, stay safe, and eventually maybe we'll get to meet Al Leong and Gerald Akamura and all those guys. <laughs> have a great couple of weeks. We'll talk to you again soon. See you for Prince of Darkness. Thank you.